It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. If you're listening to this, you've made it to Memorial Day weekend. From here on out, you can wear your seersucker. Is that a rule? Or is it Easter? Easter. I'm more of a Memorial Day guy. Why? You know, I save my seersucker for when it's hot. It feels goofy wearing a seersucker when it's 70 degrees. So, <laughs> yeah, I just offended half of our listeners. Sorry about that. Wear your seersucker whenever you want to. Who cares? But we are approaching the Memorial Day weekend. We are in budget negotiations now official. The House rejected the Senate's version of the budget on Wednesday. By the way, we're recording on Thursday afternoon, and that's setting up the conference committee, which is yet to really be put on the website, and we've talked to some legislators. Sounds like talks didn't really happen this week. Maybe some spreadsheets were exchanged, but the House pretty much told the Senate, we'll see you after the holiday. On Monday, there was this like ominous announcement from the governor's office that said, tune in for a state of emergency address at 3 p.m. We got on the YouTube channel. The speech went live at 3 o'clock. We heard it was Mm pre-recorded. And the governor kind of declared a state of emergency. He used those words, which, by the way, we're not over those words, state of emergency. (laughs) Um, I feel like a lot of good tweets could have been made about this, so some of y'all missed an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. He said he's not signing any paperwork for a state of emergency, but he was declaring one, and it was all around public education. He has a lot of disagreements with the General Assembly about the Opportunity Scholarship Bill that was traversing through the House last week. We all think it's going to be in the budget. And he did not like the Senate budget. But it set the governor up. Just let's take the substance of his, what, five-minute speech? And put that aside because what really became the target was, are we under a state of emergency and why did you use those words? We heard that a lot in the building. We saw it on social media. Republicans took after him. Certainly the governor is using the bully pulpit to communicate to the public. And he's been doing that over the last few weeks, started with SB20, and now he's doing it with public ed. But it was a curious rollout of his arguments on Monday. And since then, he's begun traveling around the state, visiting schools, and really highlighting public education. Don't think that the governor has any pretense at all that he is going to change the minds of the General Assembly. This seems to be setting up the 2024 election. He is trying to get the base of Democratic voters to get angry. We know anger is a motivating factor in an election. Now, can that anger be sustained for the next year plus? That remains to be seen, but it's creating a lot of tension between the General Assembly and the executive branch. And by the way, It's not like it was great going into Monday's speech. But, you know, related to this announcement on Monday, this state of emergency, but not state of emergency, we heard that former senior advisor to the governor, Ken Udy, who comes out of the 
public relations world. He used to own Capstrat here in Raleigh. He sold that about a decade ago, and he's been doing political work ever since. But uh, the SB20 public veto, the state of emergency, a lot of legislators are saying, yeah, this seems to be a, a Ken Udy idea. He likes to go big in the messaging, big stuff, you know, theatrics and have a stage and signs and the branding of what you're doing. So might expect more of that throughout the summer as the General Assembly continues to pass laws. The big story inside the building this week was that sports gambling was on the move. The Senate took it up in Senate Commerce on Wednesday, made some changes to the bill. It's going to have more revenue in this Senate version. They also added some universities to the list of recipients of the funding. We heard that Representative Jason saying he's the sponsor of the bill. He said the Senate has been communicating changes to him as they make changes. He didn't give an up or down as to what the House is going to do. Of course, he's going to have to take this bill back to caucus. But it did change in the Senate. It looks to be on a path to be on the Senate floor next week. Additionally, next week on the House side, all eyes will be on medical marijuana. So we saw a curious move on the medical marijuana bill last week, just as we were dropping last week's podcast, because you have a daily routine where you check bills. So on the General Assembly website, you can click under the House or the Senate bills with action by day. And that gives you a little insight into maybe what's coming, because you can see in the House and the Senate, the bills that have passed one chamber and have gone to the other, they're all in rules. But when a bill's about to move or maybe has been negotiated to be heard, it has to be officially moved out of rules. And so you can go on both the House and the Senate and see what bills are about to be moving. And this bill appeared to be on the move last week. We kind of thought maybe... Could it be heard this, this past week? week? Yeah. yeah, it did not. But we did get a notice that it's going to be in House Health Committee on Tuesday for discussion only. So we had heard this bill was going to move this long session. They were not going to keep it for the short sessions. It had passed the Senate earlier in the year. This will be a vote to watch. And I am sure there is a lot of wrangling going on behind the scenes, even as we talking right here about medical marijuana. Additionally, today we got news that there was some lasting effects from the news of last week. Yeah. The dust up between Representative Jeff McNeely and Representative Abe Jones, basically the inappropriate question that Representative McNeely asked Representative Jones about him being black and being an athlete. And is that how he got into Harvard? The apology was given. The apology was accepted. Uh, There was also an incident last week. We did not report on it last week. But there was an incident during the SB20 abortion debate in which Representative Diamond Staten Williams, freshman from Cabarrus County, was talking about her personal story with abortion. And she said that she consulted with her minister at her church. It was reported by WREL, Will Doran, that in the back of the chamber, Representative Keith Kidwell said she must go to the Church of Satan. 
both of those incidents had consequences that we saw come up today in a non-voting House session in which Representative John Bell, the majority leader, made an announcement. He said that both Representative McNeely and Representative Kidwell had resigned from their leadership positions within the House. Just this afternoon, Civitas released a new poll on the 2024 election. So interesting. These are head-to-head matchups from their polling showing that Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, in a race against Attorney General Josh Stein for governor, the two presumed frontrunners, by the way, Robinson comes in at 41.5%, and Stein comes in at 40.8%. So we're talking a razor thin margin there, uh, less than 1%, seven tenths of a percent. Uh, Stein versus Falwell. Dale Falwell, he is the Republican state treasurer. He's also running for governor as a Republican. If Attorney General Stein was to face him, he would beat him 39.4% to 33.8%, certainly a wider margin. But another close race here, we had Mark Walker uh, announced last week he is running for governor as a Republican. That matchup is tight as well. Stein comes in at 39.4%, while Walker comes in at 36.8%. So definitely a lot of folks who have not made up their mind. I'm sure there's even a few folks in this poll that have no idea who these gentlemen are, but I guarantee you this, if they have a television or a computer or a smartphone, they will know them this time next year. A lot of money's going to be spent. Do you have any unsubstantiated rumors for me? (laughs) We heard one in the building this week, and uh, you were with me. It's kind of interesting. It's that potentially Governor Cooper is doing this public education campaign in order to campaign for himself a job at the Department of Education. As the secretary. So assuming President Joe Biden is reelected, it is common for there to be a new crop of secretaries that come in in the second administration. And we were told by a couple folks, both sides of the aisle, said, look, uh, Governor Cooper, he could be on a short list for secretary of education. You know, a lot of speculation about the governor and what's he going to do next. He's still a relatively young man. Could he run for that Supreme Court seat? You mentioned that last Mm -hmm. week. It was on Twitter. Some have him slated to run for U.S. Senate in 2026. That Secretary of Education job might set him up for that. Remains to be seen. His singular focus right now seems to be helping his protege, in many ways, Josh Stein, not only get the nomination for governor, but to get him into the governor's mansion. We were very excited to sit down and get to talk to Lucille Sherman this week, just talking about the stories she has broken this year and how she got here. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. 
Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Lucille Sherman, reporter at Axios Raleigh. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. To start us off, tell us about your job. What does your day-to-day consist of? Oh, man, um, it's chaos uh, is the most important part. It's so different than being in a daily newspaper because we put out a daily newsletter that our drop-dead deadline to get everything in is, in theory, five which is more of a wish uh, because so much news breaks. 5 a.m.? P.m., sorry. Okay. 5 p.m. Um, so much news breaks after 5 p.m. And so we sort of aim to do that. Every other week, my co-writer, Zach Eanes, and I switch off doing morning edits, morning copy edits. So every other week, I wake up every day at 5.30, copy edits, drink some coffee, and get started working on the newsletter. I usually am off to the legislature at like 10 or 11. Um, I'm probably there like two or three days a week. Okay. I have a very hard time, if I'm being totally honest, getting there for anything before 10. <laughs> Even though you're up at 5.30, that's a Brian Lewis problem. It is. <laughs> it's hard getting dressed, isn't it's it? It's so hard. I just, I tell people like, I have no concept of time. Right. Like the time... I, I was five minutes late here. Like mm-hmm. the time piece in my brain is broken. I have no time estimation skills. So anyway, I usually in there like 10, 11 ish. And then I just hang out until I'm like, okay, I'm done. I also just hang out at the legislature, not necessarily to go to committee meetings, but just to like spy on people or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's my day. Um, otherwise, I'm usually like working from home or bouncing around at coffee shops or like meeting people for coffee or drinks or whatever. So this session has been a really good session for you. You broke two major stories that was the buzz and still is in NC Poll world. One, the Beth Wood accident, if you will, uh, that happened back in December. Story broke in January. And then Representative Tricia Cotham switching parties from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. You still feeling those stories? Wow, the Beth Woods story feels like a thousand years ago at this point. That might be because the Trisha Cotham story broke what feels like yesterday. The Beth Woods story was interesting. That sort of faded, I think, by the end of February. It had sort of run its course, which is always really interesting whenever you break stories like that that are more accountability-driven and they fade away quickly. That was just fascinating to watch because she just was showing up at the building and was just unafraid because that's who she is. She's very confident in herself and was not afraid to show up at the building. And I think that is sort of like her magic. She kept showing up and then the story just faded away. And you know what? She knew it would. Mm -hmm. Um, So that story feels like a distant memory at this point. Also, Tim Moore got in a car wreck around that time. There were a lot of NC poll car accidents mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Um, and so I think that story kind of like, you know, ate up the Bethwood story as these things do, you know, like something else happens and then it's just like, oh, that thing doesn't matter anymore. Representative Cotham, that story is still giving, right? Yeah, it feels like it. I was just talking to my coworker um, earlier today and he was like, 
it feels like the vibe has shifted so much at the legislature. And yeah, I feel like it's still giving because everything she does, the reaction is like, oh, it's her first time doing X thing as a Republican. I don't know if that's really fair. And mm-hmm. I don't know how long that will last. But yeah, it's like all eyes are still on her. Just watching sort of how the Republican majority's demeanor has or hasn't changed or how they address things now, I think is what makes that story, it's going to live on for a while. In relation to that story, I remember when you first tweeted it out. So in full disclosure, I get tweet notifications for you. So I saw it immediately. (laughs) But then after like a good 12, 14 hours, you could see the impressions on that. And it was millions. What was that like to just see your story blow up? Yeah, so that morning, I have a mentor that lives in Brussels, and I called him and was like, hey, I have a story, I need to tell you about it, can we walk through it? Because my editor is on paternity leave, naturally, he had like just gone on paternity leave. Um, And I was like, I think this is going to be a national story, so like I want to be ready, and he was like, you think it's going to be a national story? It's going to be a national story. So I kind of like regulated how I was thinking about it then. I just did not expect it to blow up as much as it did nationally. Mm -hmm. But when you think about it, like some of the stories that we write as journalists are complicated and messy and it's hard to understand the stakes. But the stakes of Trisha Cotham switching parties were so clear. You could say it in one sentence. And I think that's why it really blew up is in one sentence it was clear what the stakes were and why it was a big deal and people just ran with that and really reacted before you hit the tweet button was part of you thinking do i really have the story here is it going to happen because i remember like sky i get the tweet too and i'm thinking we're talking immediately lucille just tweeted this and the all of a sudden, the building just is a buzz. We were sitting in rules in the <laughs> auditorium. I showed Brian my phone. Whoever was beside me, too, everybody just picked it up. What was it like hitting the tweet button? Was any trepidation whatsoever after you speak to your mentor? Um, so first, I should say, I spoke to him with a lot of stories. I talk to my editors when I have enough. So usually I'll have one source. And I have to feel confident enough to even pitch it to my editor or be like, I think this might break today. And so I think I broke the story around like two-ish. And so I called him at like 6.30 or 7. So that I was working all that time to break it. 6.30 in the morning? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then was working all that time. At minimum, we have to have two sources if we're going to go anonymously. I always go for four. Three is like what all editors would really like. Um, And they all have to be from different areas. They can't be the same people who were like talking to each other about it or whatever. So by around, I think, 12.30 or 1, I had all my sources lined up, had the story already written, and then we were giving Cotham just and sort of the people around her a little bit more time left to comment. And so by the time I tweeted it at 2, one, I had had that tweet tweet drafted since 7 30 a.m and two i felt really good about it and i'm like sort of a scaredy cat about putting stuff like that out there but i had lined everything up for hours and so by the time i hit it i felt really good about it 
if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't tweet stuff if I haven't reread the tweet probably 30 times and talked to a lot of people about it. So a few hours after you tweeted, we get a notice from Speaker Tim Moore's press office saying the press conference is Wednesday morning. He'll be there and Representative Cotham will be there sense of relief, I guess, even though you've read it 30 times, you've got four sources, three sources, you've talked to your mentors, it had to be like, oh, yeah, I got the story right. So what was interesting about that is I normally feel like that whenever the press release goes out. And a lot of the reporters and the press corps, wherever were tweeting, like, if this is true, I've never felt so confident in a scoop like that before. Like, I did not even feel that confident in the Beth Woods scoop. But I had talked to so many people and at that point, like it had been percolating amongst people for a while that I knew and also multiple people were trying to get me to hold the story until after they could put out their release or until after they um, talked to the House Caucus or whatever. So I felt pretty good about it even before the press release went out. But I can't say that's always true. Any indication that any of your colleagues in the press corps we're on to the story. I always gauge sort of how worried I should be that somebody's going to come up behind me and scoop me by how many people are chatting about it. And that morning, one or two people told me, I'm shocked the story didn't break already. Right. And then I thought, oh no. So I'm not really sure who had it or who didn't have it, but that morning, I felt pretty good that it was going to get out quickly within a few hours. And so that usually makes me panic. And then my editors are like, oh, my God, Lucille, can you stop spamming me on Slack? <laughs> stop calling me every two minutes. So, yeah, I, I mean, I always assume numerous people know. This is a high stress job, as you just described, like you panic and you have to get all of these things lined up. How do you go about approaching a story? I spend so much of my time just chatting with people usually what happens is I'm you know getting drinks with someone or getting lunch with someone or just catching up with someone in general I try not to like have an agenda when I talk to people because people get so stressed when you have an agenda and they feel like you're just trying to get something out of them but like so many people in this realm of North Carolina politics are honestly just a joy to talk to um, and learn about. And so I sort of start there. And then what happens is usually someone says something offhand. And then I'm talking to someone else, you know, a few hours later or a couple days later, and they repeat the same thing. And so usually like one person says something to me and I'm like, hmm, I should probably start chasing that. And then by the time another person says something or two or three more people say something or a handful of people text me, then I sort of start running instead of walking on a story, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. There's also just a lot of information flying inside the building, offhand comments. You must get tips inside the building. We find that when we're in the building, just a treasure trove of information comes our way because people are just chatting. I think I sort of get a lot of that chatter via text because honestly, people are afraid to talk to me in real life sometimes in the building. So you guys might be a little bit more accessible in the building. For example, after I broke the Trisha Cotham story, like there were a lot of people who wouldn't make eye contact with me. (laughs) (laughs) 
Because they were the source. <laughs> yeah, they're like worried that people are going to think they're the source. I'm like, nobody's going to notice if you're making eye contact with me and smile. But okay. So I had to like, normally people I wave at, I'm like we're like trying to not look at me. But anyway, um, I get a lot from sitting and watching and people will come up to me and usually say funny things that I sort of wish I could tweet. But I feel like I get most of my information via text or actually on the phone because people are sort of afraid I think to be saying stuff out loud in the building. I think I put in my, in our daily newsletter, every day we have outros where we say something like funny or dumb or I like this wine or whatever. And a couple weeks ago I wrote that I walked up to somebody in the building and I'm a loud talker. Um, I'm very loud and the building's echoey. And they were like, first of all, keep your voice down. And like, (laughs) we're like looking around and there were people around and they were like not wanting to talk to me and I sat down and they were like I I gotta go um so that's usually my experience trying to talk to people in the building unless it's a lawmaker I get a lot from sitting you know in between the corner offices or sitting outside people it's sitting outside Raven's office stuff like that that's sort of where I get a lot of my ideas or thoughts or something I can jump off of and ask somebody about if that makes sense Mm -hmm. Can we talk about Axios Raleigh for a minute? Yeah. So aside from the state politics reporting, you also do, as you said, that daily newsletter, and it is really Raleigh focused. First, can you talk about taking that leap to do this new project? Yeah, it was very scary. My dad is a journalist, and so I've grown up in newsrooms forever. I've known newsrooms since I was a little girl and spent a ton of time in newsrooms. And so the idea of leaving a newsroom felt very risky to me, even though, you know, newspapers are having just objectively a really hard time. It still felt very scary because it was like sort of my comfort space. And it also just felt like, I don't know, is this real? Is this right? Like, am I going to get laid off in a year or a month or whatever? Um, But for me, I feel like my sort of privilege in being recruited by Axios was that I'm young and could take the leap. I don't have any kids. Um, My husband has a great job. We felt like now would be a good time to try something scary. And um, one thing that I really worried about that was actually my biggest calculation in making the flip was, will I be able to cover state politics as much as I did at the News and Observer? I wish I could tell my past self who was agonizing about this decision that Raleigh and the people of Raleigh care so much about state politics. They really care about what's going on in the rest of the state. It really has been sort of like magic. Kind of going back, you went to school at Mizzou? Yeah. Talk to us about how you went from there to North Carolina and what made you decide to come here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I graduated from the University of Missouri in 2017, December 2017, and then got a job on the investigations desk at Gatehouse. And right as I was leaving or thinking about leaving at the end of 2019, Gannett bought out Gatehouse. So things were sort of changing. And also I had spent two years... Um, actually writing about midwives and home births, which is a really (laughs) fascinating and niche topic. Um, And like I said, I I loved it. But yeah, I I had covered state politics in Missouri for a stint. My first year reporting was 2016. 
and I covered the Roy Blunt and Jason Kander Senate race. Got it. So on the eve, uh, on the night of the election in 2016, I was in Kansas City at a really fun theater at uh, Jason Kander's watch party. And then a month later, I remember my one of my best friends and I, both reporters, convinced our editors to let us drive up to Des Moines, Iowa <laughs> to cover a Trump rally that was happening right after he was elected. Um, so that was sort of like my birth <laughs> into journalism. Home birth? <laughs> my home birth. Uh, I have things to say about that, but I could talk about that for like ever. I'm also sure, not sure your listeners want to hear about home birth, but <laughs> I don't know. They may. Um, they may. Yeah, so I had covered politics. I covered um uh, the governor, Eric Greitens, who uh, the now disgraced uh, former governor, Eric Greitens of Missouri, I covered his first session. I covered everything like concealed carry um, permits going away. I covered, you know, paid leave discussions, stuff like that. Um, and what's different in Missouri that's so interesting compared to here is that lobbyists run the legislature in Missouri because there's term limits. Oh. And all of the lawmakers become lobbyists. And you don't need to talk to lawmakers really as much in Missouri. If you really need a quote, you do. But if you want to know what's going on, you do not talk to lawmakers. You talk to the lobbyists. And so that sort of like, it it was addicting. It's so addicting being in a legislative building and like running around trying to get a story. And so just that little dose, which I did for like a year, I loved it. And then I went and ended up covering investigations. And then whenever I was ready to like, whenever I was like, I think I need something. I think I need a beat. I knew I had, I had no doubt that I wanted to cover state politics and really anywhere. And I knew I'd be happy doing that. North Carolina. Why? North Carolina is so funny. Um, Dan Kane, uh, the investigative reporter at the NNO, is actually honestly probably the reason I got the job at the NNO. He had reached out to someone I knew in Florida. It was so weird. Like, things are so meant to be. I really believe that. Um, but I had met with one of my mentors. We grabbed, like, a juice at a bodega place. And I was like, I think I need a beat. And we talked about it. And the next day... Dan Kane had messaged him and was like, hey, do you know anybody that might be interested in this job? And it felt like really weird timing. It was a swing state. It was 2020. Like, it just felt like an absolute dream of a place to cover. My only hesitation was like, can I handle it? Like, am I going to be able to keep up? I've been doing one story a year. Can I really handle, like, daily beat reporting, like, competition, deep sourcing, stuff like that. So that was like my only hesitation in making the jump, but I just did it. I got here a week before the primary. I covered my first assignment was Bernie Sanders at uh, Reverend Barber's Church in Goldsboro. Very first assignment. 2020. 2020, yep. Um, I covered Amy Klobuchar that week. I covered Buttigieg that week. The primary happened. It was so early in COVID that, like, I remember meeting Jeff Tiberi at the Dem watch party, and we, like, didn't want to shake hands. It was just such a weird time. (laughs) Um, And then everything shut down. So, yeah, now I'm here. How did you adapt from going to the investigative stuff to the Daily Beat? Was was there a a learning curve, if you will? I, it it was really hard. I, I was confused and lost in the building all the time. And it's so hard to know 
who likes to give quotes and who actually knows things. <laughs> um, and that was really the learning curve for me. Like I need quotes to put in my story and to get information. Like who of these people is just talking to me because they want to get in the paper and who of these people is talking to me because they actually know things. I could say a lot more about that, but I won't. And, uh, <laughs> and then what really was great for me was whenever the NNO, um, I was so, I will forever be so grateful for this. They put me on the legislative beat for the general election. I was just in charge of covering every legislative race, which ended up being like I focused on the big swing races. And that really helped me figure out who should I be talking to? Who are the big players? What are the districts that matter? Who are, you know, who are the operatives and what do they know? And that did everything for my ability to source and understand what was happening. If I would not have been put on that beat, I have no idea (laughs) how I would have covered things. But that was really like the moment where everything sort of clicked for me, I think. Sounds like your father's career had a huge impact on you. When did you make the decision that you wanted to be a journalist? Yeah, this is funny. So I, um, I'm a contrarian, I think, uh, my parents would say. I love to do the opposite of whatever people in authority tell me, uh, which is why I think being in journalism is great for me. Um, my dad being a journalist actually made me want to run the other way. And I remember in high school, I had to write a research paper, and it was like any topic, and I chose why newspapers are dying. (laughs) And I wrote an entire essay about why newspapers were screwed, and they were going in the ground, and like, you're in the wrong industry, Dad. You're going down, which is a ballsy thing to say to someone who is the sole income earner in your family. (laughs) I ended up for some reason that I don't really know, I ended up um, taking a high school journalism class. Um, and then I took a, uh, like an intensive, the Oklahoman, which is where my dad worked, had like a young journalist class where we like literally produced a little insert to put in the paper and we all worked on stories. And so those two things, really the class at the Oklahoman where I was working with actual journalists Um, The journalist who taught my class then is now at the LA Times. She's a mental health editor at the LA Times. That really made me like, oh, this is so fun. And I think really realizing that this was fun and I get to talk to people and I get to know stuff before other people know stuff, that made me really want to do it. But your paper wasn't wrong. Journalism is at a crossroads. I just watched the White House Correspondents Dinner on Saturday night on C-SPAN. I love that's what you did on a Saturday night. I know, right? I love that. (laughs) But a lot of talk about, you know, paywalls and local journalism feeding up to the national journalism. And there was a lot of lamenting like, hey, guys, we got to fix this. I mean, there's a lot facing journalism, right? It's at at this crossroads. And and everybody has a podcast these days, too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Really, for me, the calculation is not like, why are newspapers dying or why are newspapers having such a hard time? Which I should say, I don't think newspapers are dying. I don't think that's an accurate description. I think they're evolving. That is good. I like that. Yeah. Everybody's sort of just trying to figure out how we can serve the public better. And for me, the crisis is like trust in journalism and not really like 
how are we going to make money? Um, but I'm not an executive. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's why I have that perspective. Axios Raleigh made sense to me because I want to be a part of building trust in media and helping people realize that like I'm a human and I'm really here because I care about this and I care about you. Like you're my neighbor and I want to make sure that you're getting the information that you need. So whenever you wake up in the morning, you can read my newsletter, you can drive to work and talk to your coworker on the way and be able to, you know, banter about the news of the day or get in the elevator and talk about, you know, what Cooper did that day or whatever. Um, and so for me, yeah, I think about trust in media and how we can get people to like actually believe us when we write stuff. And so that's really more of what I think about day in and day out and less of you know, how is the industry going to make money and survive? Which again, like I have a lot of privilege in that because I'm on a team of two people and not in a newsroom of 50 people, you know? Your father must be proud though, right? (laughs) I think (laughs) (laughs) he would be so mad at me if he heard that. I think so. Um, (laughs) He just is, um, it's hard being in the same industry as your parent. I don't know if either of your parents are lobbyists, but when you're in (laughs) Our parents don't even know what lobbyists are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, my in-laws do not know what I do and that's nice. They are very proud of me. My mom doesn't know. My mom doesn't understand. She's over the moon. I could do anything. She'd think it's great. My dad's like, hmm, cool. I think he's really proud of me. (laughs) Sometimes I think he's just unimpressed because he's kind of seen it. He's seen it all. He's 60. He's been in the industry for 40 years. Like Mm -hmm. he's seen everything. Um, and so I think he's sort of like unfazed by things sometimes. Even the Trisha Cotham story. Um, he was like, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope he doesn't listen. Um, he, you know, he may not. Um, <laughs> no, he loves me. He's really proud of me. I was like, dad, like the New York times is crediting us. And he was like, that's really awesome. <laughs> um, I know he's proud of me, but he also wants me to be better and better and better and better and better and helps me get better and pushes me to be better and better and better. That's sort of our relationship is I'm I'm always trying to get better. That's just who I am as a person. And he knows that. And he also wants me to be better. He wants me to be the best. Mm -hmm. In fact, he doesn't let my ego get too big ever. He's like, "Mm, that's cool. New York Times. All right. Sweet. Um... (laughs) Anyway, what are you going to do next week? Uh, so, yeah, that's the also editor in him. You know, whenever you whenever you hit publish on a story that's huge and you think like, oh, my editor is going to leave me alone for two weeks now. Um, they're like, OK, yeah. So um, tomorrow, what do you got? Yeah. Um, and that's how my dad is, too. Do you feel like North Carolina is home now or do you feel in a year or two? You know, maybe you want to go national or somewhere else. Do you feel like you've settled in here? Yeah, I love that question. So I always thought my dad moved. We moved a lot. I was born in Utica, New York, and then we moved to Nashville, and we lived there until I was seven. And then we lived in Oklahoma, um, and and that's where I lived until, uh, obviously, I moved Um, So in my brain, everybody just moves a lot, especially early in their career as a journalist. So I just assumed I'd be here for two years and then I'd bounce. I was hoping like fingers crossed for DC, New York City, that kind of LA, that kind of thing. But I very quickly fell in love with Raleigh. 
I think I'll have a very, very, very hard time ever leaving. It's so fun, like just talking to people every day and I'm still learning so much. Like, I don't think I want to leave until I feel like I'm maxed out on knowledge. Um, I'm not sure I'll ever be there because this state is crazy. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I love Raleigh. I really like, am such a Raleigh fangirl. Like I believe in the city and like, it just has so much potential and it's so awesome and like, it's going to keep growing. Um, and the politics of our state are fascinating. And so if anything, I would want to like cover Southern politics because I would like to keep a hand in North Carolina, like, I don't know, for as long as I live. Uh, <laughs> um, so I don't know. I just, I, I have a hard time thinking about what would be next because I just love it so much. It's just addicting. So you must have colleagues around, not only with Axios, but McClatchy. And I'm asking this sincerely. Is there any other state that is as quirky, interesting, and weird as NC Poll? You know, other swing states are fascinating, and I feel like a lot of other swing states now get a lot more attention nationally because of, like, you know, Senate races or whatever congressional races are happening. I personally think no, obviously, because I'm still here. But also, every state is so different and, like, state legislatures are crazy like state lawmakers are crazy people (laughs) they just decide to like spend all their time lawmaking what (laughs) um like these people are giving up like their entire year indefinitely for fourteen thousand dollars like what anyway so i think every state legislature is kind of crazy but obviously i'm partial to this one so this is the magic wand question if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing in our politics And that could be policy, procedure, journalism, or otherwise, what would it be? I wish people would just talk to each other more. I wish the public knew how much lawmakers just talk to each other. I think you guys do an amazing job of capturing that on the show. Like, they're humans that enjoy spending time together despite being of opposite political affiliations. But I find myself, especially this session, so frustrated by honestly grandstanding and people who are just saying things so that they can get a video of them saying it and post it on social media I just wish people would like talk to each other before they do that and I I feel confident saying that because I ask them I say did you talk to so-and-so do you know if the rules chairman is gonna take up your bill do you know what his you know objections to the bill are have you have you laid the groundwork um, before you run legislation? And that is just infuriating to me. Like, I just don't feel like it's that hard. I'm being very honest. I just don't feel like it's that hard to like grab somebody's arm in the hall and talk to them. I don't think it's that hard because I have to do it every day and y'all have to do it every day. Um, I just wish people would talk to each other more and like realize that we're all humans and 95% of us there's a 5% that maybe not, but 95% of us are like well-intentioned and are just trying to do the thing that's best for us and our families and our cities and our communities. So I don't know. I just wish people were willing to see each other as people. Well, Lucille Sherman, we appreciate everything you do in North Carolina politics, your coverage of the North Carolina General Assembly, your work at Axios Raleigh, 
You certainly know how to do journalism better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you guys so much for having me. I loved it. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. One of the services of this podcast is helping NC Poll World understand what makes legislators tick, how they operate, uh, why they operate the way they do. We think the same applies to reporters. The media plays such a vital role when you're advancing public policy down at the General Assembly, seeing who covers what, what interests they have, getting to know the reporters, reading their stories, understanding the perspectives they have, it really does help you become a better advocate for your clients. Now, Lucille Sherman, what a wonderful journalist she is. And we've really enjoyed getting to know her this session, especially her work over at Axios Raleigh. Every day, that newsletter, we get it, we read it, and it helps us understand what's going on in the General Assembly. Not to mention, she breaks a lot of stories. Lucille, thank you for being on the podcast this week. We really did enjoy it. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. So this week's Tweet of the Week is from me and Todd Johnson by association. You're welcome. I'm at skydiving11 on Twitter. (laughs) And my tweet said, this photo is from election day 1982. What North Carolina legislator do you think is rocking the bowl cut? So I would direct you to my tweet to see said bowl cut. And it is Todd Johnson. Mm -hmm. One person got it. Dylan Watts got it pretty much immediately, which makes me think he'd seen the photo before. Yeah, it's a great photo. It's black and white, 1982. Senator Johnson is the youngest of four kids in the photo, dapper as can be with his little sports coat tie and his boat shoes and this mop of a haircut. Looks like if you ever watched Eight is Enough, he looks like the little kid Nicholas. We're in a meeting with him. He, sh- yeah. he shows us the photo, and you take a picture of it. I asked him, Yeah, may I take a picture yeah, of it? That's right. I'm all about consent. Of course you are. So then I said, Senator Johnson, can we put this photo on Twitter? And I said, I already did. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was a great photo. You know, sometimes photos from our childhood can be a little embarrassing. I have a few photos that I'm not super proud of. One is um, if if you see photos of me as like a youngster, we're talking toddler. Youngster. Yeah, like two years old, three years old, four years old. You know you're old. over 50 if you're using youngster. <laughs> Every photo of me at that young, young age, there's this water 
mark that is on all my shirts because I was a drooler as a kid. And Until what age? <laughs> like, according to the Actually, you're still a drooler when you nap. Oh, that's true. But like three, four years old, my mom used to just put a bib around me. So I have a lot of photos. You would think I'm probably always eating. I'm not always eating as a kid. It's because my mother was trying to keep the slobber off my chest because it would just run right down my chin. I must. They must have thought I was like the biggest idiot because, yeah... <laughs> You go. That's a good photo. I, that's actually an old sky. By the way, is showing me a studio photo. Oh, I, there you are again. Yeah, yeah. If you'd like to see just the timeline of Brian's life, you can find that on our Instagram. Yeah. Uh, then, when I was in high school, graduating senior, my photo is the worst mullet. I mean, party in the back, business on top. But that was kind of the style in 1989. But it doesn't age well at all. You got embarrassing photos. You were like yeah. you were like a fat. Te- no, well, you were not fat. <laughs> yes, it was. But you were like a teenage model for like these that ice cream store. I wasn't a teenage model. I that, those were my senior photos. <laughs> <laughs> With you, ice cream, I made. I was a manager at the ice cream place, and also I had. One photo with all of my papers mm-hmm. from the State Board of Education. They sent, oh, they would mail me a packet that was like three or four pounds of paper every month. And I didn't have anything to do, so I read them all. So I collected all my papers, had them all tabbed out. And so I did a photo where I was throwing them up in the air. Okay. And it sits next to my brother's photo, which is much more normal with his bike. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're not embarrassed by them, are you? No. There are things that make us feel a little embarrassed. We've been talking about that today. Yeah, we've been talking about things that are embarrassing, but they shouldn't be embarrassing. Like, they're just everyday things. Yeah. Downtown Raleigh, you go to some of the really cool bars, or you go into Edge of Urge, which is a great shop near where you live, up on North Person, and there is a hipster kind of community yeah in raleigh and it's also at standard beer like if you go to standard beer on a friday after work you feel like everyone is so cool and i don't feel cool when i walk in with like a suit on or i feel middle-aged and i feel like even some of the middle-aged people that hang out at standard like like they dress in such a way that's so casual, but I bet their shorts and t-shirts cost more than my suit. I mm-hmm. will say that. But yeah, I, yeah, I just feel awkward sometimes. Yeah. I don't feel cool enough to go to Durham at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> like Durham, it's just like, I don't fit in. I'm, I'm really more Raleigh. I got to go. <laughs> yeah. And I love Representative Vernetta Austin. I've, I've actually hung out with her in Durham, but like we'll go hang out. And I'm like, I'm not as cool as you, Representative Austin. And I'm not as cool as everyone here in Durham. Everyone just feels like they got a vibe that I don't have. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like... What is your vibe? I don't know. I went to Virginia Reed's uh, birthday party a couple weeks ago. Standard, yeah. I didn't feel cool at all. Like, I had my... Was that because you were the only 50-year-old there? (laughs) Probably was. I maybe need to get some older friends, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I I hear your best friend's 32. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, you're an old lady at heart. Like, you're really 82. 
you know <laughs> i've realized that when people said that to you like my grandma said that to me as a kid yeah. and it seemed like such a nice compliment you have an old soul but i think it just means you're kind of a weird kid <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are a weird kid. I'm a weird kid, too. There are other things that make you feel out of place, right? Well, one thing that I think is embarrassing all day, every day, and, you know, I've talked about it before. I walk to the office. I walk to the General Assembly. I My main method of transportation is walking. Yeah. So, Obviously, part of that is crosswalks. There's just something inherently <laughs> embarrassing about having to stop and just stand at a crosswalk <laughs> waiting for the cars to go. But I just wish that the cars could collectively stop for me, let me go, and y'all work out when you want to go. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. This is one of the most embarrassing things for me. And this happens a lot to me at the General Assembly. You know, I've got some legislators that I really think are cool. And I'm not going to list all of them here. It's on both sides of the aisle, both chambers. And one of them, of course, is like Danny Britt, Senator Britt. I like, yes. like, like, I love the guy. Yeah. Everything about him. Just, I love his politics. I love the way he does. But I'll see him. And I'll think he's waving at me. And I'll wave back at him. Or oh, he I'll did the, he or, did that? Or I'll try to get his attention. It's like, hey, Senator Britt, and he doesn't hear <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's that time that you saw, you had a full conversation with him, and he was talking to somebody else. I know, man. Like, it's all thumbs. <laughs> or, or I think he's waving at me, and I'll give him a big wave back, and I realize he's waving to someone behind me yeah, or something like that. Yeah, that's really embarrassing. When you think someone's waving, then you have to do the comb in your hair. Yeah, I know. No, and here's the funny thing. It's like, I am a 51-year-old man, and some of these legislators are like in their 30s, right? Or 40s. I'm older than you. I should not be like this, but yeah. I, I do. But uh, Maybe talk about that with your therapist. <laughs> I think the thing is, is I don't feel 51. I feel like uh, I just... I don't know. I look up to these people who are decades younger than me. This takes me to another topic, <laughs> and that's that I don't think grown men should wear jerseys. <laughs> I, that really just took me right to that point. When I was in college and I worked at I worked at our athletic store and I would like do the heat press and yeah. a lot of the things that I did were like custom for the moms of football players, you know, they wanted something fun. But I once told my the guy that owned the store, I was like, yeah, don't you think it's a little embarrassing when a 40-year-old man comes in and buys a jersey of an 18-year-old boy? Yeah. And he was like, please never say that to a customer. <laughs> I feel weird getting wanded at the General Assembly, too. Why? I don't know. I do love the interactions with the security staff because it's always fun. But, like, I mean, they're just going all up and down your body and I'm got my hands out <laughs> and you know it's beeping and I just feel vulnerable and, I'm, oh. and I wonder like you know is is my zipper up you know just all this stuff I'm wow. a lot of my, insecurities yeah, come out for you you know that makes me think I don't ever think this way when I'm going through security at the general assembly I'm not like 
nervous. TSA, I start to panic. Like I've never, you know, I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never done yeah. drugs, but I'm like, what if there are drugs in my bag? You know, <laughs> like exactly. what, if, what if I'm about to get in trouble? What if there's a gun in there? And I'm like, Sky, you don't have any of those things in there. <laughs> yeah, we got behind a lobbyist this week. And her back, you know, you send your back yeah. through. And they started pulling stuff out. And I almost felt... That I, was embarrassing. It was. I was with her. And we know her. I just had to walk away. I was like, I need to give her privacy. Yeah. Like they're we, pull- Well, we were standing around her because we were waiting on our stuff to come through. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is between y'all. I'll move on. And I just looked away. So she did get in the building. All's good. But yeah. You know. Are they insecurities that that you think I have? Is that why you said I should go talk to my therapist? I don't know. Maybe ask yourself that. Are they? I should probably get a therapist. Yeah. (laughs) My time's about up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Enjoy the long weekend in Seapool. Next week is going to be... A little more exciting with medical marijuana, sports gambling, both of those happening in each chamber. And so we are sure that we'll have some news to report. But for this weekend, enjoy family, whatever you do for Memorial Day. And please remember to do politics better. Okay, so here is... Crazy, I don't know. I feel like we could just go on and on, but we have to end this somewhere. <laughs> I love that you think this state is great because it's the weirdest. That is the best. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> <laughs>